Thank you for doing this. Tell us, I think everybody would be fascinated to know, on a day when the Supreme Court hands down a big decision at 10 o'clock in the morning, what is your morning like at that point? Slightly insane, because my first duty is to the newscast, which uh, is, after all, uh, if it's I get out of the courtroom, let's say it's 10.20, 10.30, it's 7.30 on the West Coast, and the next newscast up is at 8 o'clock. And so I should get something onto that newscast and write a one-minute spot, which is much more difficult than you may think, especially when you're looking at an opinion and dissents that may be 50, 60, or if it's a huge opinion, over 100 pages long. And then also Morning Edition is still in its morning phase. And at 11 o'clock in the morning, it's 8 o'clock in the morning, and they would like me to go on live, usually at 11 10, if it's very big. It could be a little later in the hour if it's not that big, but let's assume it's something like uh, the Hamdan case. I did something in the Hamdan case I have never done in my life. I was sitting there listening to the announcement of cases. It was the last day of the court term and the dissents, and both Justice Scalia and Justice Thomas did oral dissents. I didn't know that. Scalia was deep into his rant. And I love Scalia rants normally and sit there scribbling notes like (laughs) mad. But there had been a a, a case announced before Hamdan, and Justice Souter had announced it. It was a a case involving the death of a policeman and, and the conviction of an insanity, an insanity case. And it went on for quite some time, so it was after 10.30, and Scalia is still talking. And I finally decided I can't sit here. Uh, this is a huge opinion. I'm going to have to get on the air fast. And I got up, and I left. Went downstairs, and I, th- I think the opinion was 160-plus pages, s- opinion and dissents, and there was more than one opinion in the majority. And I'm scrambling like mad to see what it says and what there is a majority for. And I, when I did the the what we call a two way, which is an interview with a host at eleven ten, I was extremely cautious about what I said the holding was, and in fact I wasn't quite sure what the holding was mm. with regard to what we now all know Article Three of the Geneva Conventions. I wasn't quite sure what the Supreme Court had held. I, it was clear that they had struck down the tribunals as and that they said they weren't authorized by Congress, the president had gone too far. But I was very cautious. I didn't say anything untrue, but I was probably more cautious than the facts justified. By evening, let's just say that my analysis was more rigorous. (laughs) Um, By evening, I had interviewed a ton of people. Um, I'd done at least eight interviews, which were in my piece and for the following morning as well. And uh, you know, I was I was all set, and I had other people saying what it meant. But I have to tell you, although I skimmed the whole opinion later in the day, I never had time to sit down and read it word for word, think about it, what it meant, read all the footnotes. I'm just not that fast a reader. I wasn't able to do that for two days. You have been, despite your youth, a reporter for... A while. <laughs> a long, long time. A long, long time. Many decades. What, what is it that's distinctive or what is it that you love about covering the court? And if it's changed at all, how has it? 
Well, maybe it's a reflection of the fact that I do like predictability to some extent. The excitement of reporting, but the predictability of routine, it hasn't changed that much. You know, there are some things that have changed, but not... The microphones that we use that are in the Supreme Court have been there for decades. <laughs> They're just now remodeling the place, and we're finally going to have new booths, but it smells like the attic, and because that's pretty much the age of it. Um, the... I suppose the major difference is that on some big cases, we now do have the audio available on a delayed basis, but same-day basis. And we're going to get this term uh, delayed again, but transcripts, uh, same-day transcripts, which have not been available before. So when I do my recreations of the oral argument, it's based on my notes, and I have no way to check it other than with my colleagues. And now I'll be able to check it I think by by early afternoon I'll be able to see a a transcript and see if I was pretty right or if I was off a bit. <laughs> and and is it a collegial press score? Some press scores I have the sense are very competitive, where someone thinks they have a, a scoop or a, a, an insight, and they don't tend to share very much. How does the Supreme Court press score get along? It is a very collegial press score because there is relatively little opportunity for a scoop. We all see the same thing. We see the oral arguments. We see the briefs. We see the opinions. We see the justices on some occasions, usually in a social setting. You can't ask them anything about um, about opinions, decisions, or cases. That would be inappropriate. They'd never talk to you again. That would be it. So, you know, there are insights that one may have or even interpretations. I mean, I have had days when my interpretation of a case was really quite different than my colleague Linda Greenhouse from the New York Times. And we were, she's writing for the front page and I'm writing for the top of all things considered. And there are times in retrospect where she's been right and there are times in retrospect where I've been right. And I, one other thing I think people may be really interested in is, particularly when you compare other press scores, are there leaks or is the Supreme Court you know, tight as a sip? <laughs> Not tight as a sieve. <laughs> it's pretty leak-proof uh, in terms of any substance. You may hear things about, you know, sort of how the how the place is operating, or mm -hmm. you may even hear a rumor about somebody not getting along with somebody else. Very rarely, though. Very rarely. I would say almost not at all. And in terms of outcomes of cases, it's, I would say, pretty totally leak-proof. And were it not to be, it would be of some concern because, after all, a lot of what the Supreme Court does, not all of it, but a significant amount involves the economy of the country. And if you knew the outcome of a case ahead of time, uh, there would be real possibilities for mischief on the stock market, for example. And that's one of the reasons that the court, in addition to its traditions, you would be, I, as you say, I have covered the court for a very long time, and I have known, I have had one or two times where I thought I knew the outcome of a case and how it was going, and I was right when I knew it and wrong when it came out. <laughs> you know, people change their minds. They do on occasion change their minds. Um, about the substance of the court's decision-making, you know, there's a lot of talk about the court becoming 
much more conservative or already being conservative, and you have had the opportunity to see the court over time. What is your sense of how different things really are in the court's jurisprudence between now and the mid-1980s, before that even? is Are things really as very different in the not long historical sense, but even in the, the sort of modern uh, sense? Well... I think they are different. I mean, it is it is a much more conservative court. Even with Justice O'Connor, it was a more conservative court. But just at the time that the court could have really moved more dramatically to the right, she really came into her, her own as a justice. It may have had something to do with the departure of Justice Brennan, who was the most liberal member of the court, and who, for some reason or other, she was deeply suspicious of. She was afraid of being sort of caught in Brennan's famed um, web of bonhomie. <laughs> and she was very... But by the time he left in the in the uh, early 90s, uh, or late... Was it the late 80s? Early 90s. In the late... In the early 90s. Um, she had been on the court for 10 years, mm. and she really came into her own, and she by then really knew what she thought and where she wanted to be. And it was more conservative in many areas, states' rights, for example, and even on affirmative action, but not nearly as far to the right as the hard right on the court wanted to go. And she has been replaced by somebody who is quite likely, unless we're all incredibly surprised, to be much more like Justice Scalia than uh, Justice Powell or any other centrist or Justice O'Connor, whom he's replacing. And so the court, I think, is going to move much more to the right than it has been in modern times, I would say, in the last uh, half century. One other thing. You asked me whether things were different. One thing that really um, is different, and I, I had forgotten this, when I started covering the court in the late 1960s and in the 70s, And even in the 80s, you really could not tell what a justice thought from his questions. And I say his because they were hises. Um, As often as not, a justice who was asking mean questions of counsel was asking them to test his own inclination, which was to agree with counsel. But he was really pressing himself to see if he was wrong. That is far less true today. You go to an argument, and not always, but eight or nine times out of ten, you can see which way it's going to go. And that was not true when I started covering the court. In the 1970s, when the court um, overturned the death penalty for a short time and then reinstituted it as long as there were certain added protections, that was a shock both times, Mm. an absolute shock. Um, In fact, the Roe versus Wade was a shock. That it that it, it turned out the way it did, and as in such a lopsided way, it was seven to two Roe versus Wade, um, and there were many other cases. You really did not know how cases were going to turn out. Can can we talk about the boy girl thing though for a second? What what's your sense of the fact that it's now the the effect of it now being eight one versus seven two? Will it make a, a difference? Well, I think it probably will make some difference in gender cases. Uh, Experience counts for the same reason that you 
want somebody of color on the court, and even somebody very conservative like Justice Clarence Thomas, for example, when it came to a cross-burning case, he was he brought his own experience to it in a, in a quite public way in his questions and in an unusual way about the terror of cross-burning. And I think that the experience of having um, tried to get jobs and women just didn't get jobs, and that was certainly the experience of Justice O'Connor and, and Justice Ginsburg. They uh, were highly qualified for many jobs. Justice O'Connor graduated third in her class, couldn't get a job as a lawyer, was offered a job as a secretary at a big law firm in California. Justice Ginsburg graduated first in her class from first, she was at Harvard first and then graduated from Columbia first in her class, couldn't get a job at a law firm, couldn't get a, even in, it was recommended for a Supreme Court clerkship, couldn't even get an interview. Um, there was a wonderful story about her. Um, she was, I think it was, um, who was it? Who? Was it Frankfurter? No, it was somebody on the Court of Appeals who didn't oh, give sorry. her a job. I think maybe it was Learned Hand. In any event, it was a very prestigious judge. And she eventually did get a clerkship on the Court of Appeals with a, um, another judge who drove Judge Hand to work every day. And uh, the judge who did not hire her said, that he had not hired her because he didn't. He wanted to be able to swear, and he wouldn't be able to swear in front of her. Well, there she goes to court every day with the two judges sitting in the front seat, and the judge who didn't hire her is swearing like a stevedore. And finally she said to him, Why is it that you feel free to swear in the car when I'm here, and you, you didn't hire me because you said I, you couldn't swear in front of me? And he said, Well, when I swear here, I'm not looking you in the face. <laughs> but you have those experiences, and it does frame how you look at certain practices, laws, et cetera, involving gender discrimination. And now there's only one person on the court who's had that experience. Uh, true, some people have had daughters, but it's not quite the same. So I, I suspect in cases where gender is at all an issue, it may have some, some effect. And I, I, having been the only woman for a good deal of my life when I was first working, um, I know that that's not really a lot of fun. It's really nice to have another girl you can schmooze with and share confidences with about your experiences, even if your legal view is not the same. Certainly Justice O'Connor and Justice Ginsburg don't didn't have the same legal views at all. But I suspect Justice Ginsburg will be lonely. Even though Justice O'Connor is there some of the time. I mean, she's actually physically got offices near Justice Ginsburg, but she's more and more out of the country and out of the city, and her husband is in Arizona, and uh, I suspect that's where she'll be more than here. And I think Justice Ginsburg will likely be sort of lonely. Thank you so much. You're welcome.